Julianne. Um, please, uh, if you're here with us this morning or if you're watching through the live stream, make sure that you open up either on your device or in your Bible, Psalm 8. That is what we're going to be looking at together. Um, but let me begin by praying uh, for us. Pray with me, please. O Lord, our Lord, help us to grasp afresh this morning how majestic is your name in all the earth. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. What's the life of faith? What is it to be a believer? See, for many people, when they, they think of it as adopting a religion, I guess you could say, so a series of regulations, uh, beliefs, rituals that mark them out as being part of a faith. So that faith has a history, has traditions, even perhaps has architecture that marks it out as different from other faiths and when they gather, they're joining people of like mind. Uh, for others, it might be adopting a philosophy of sorts. So maybe you could call it being part of a movement, a worldview with its corresponding behaviours. Belief is about the ideas and convictions that one has and we associate with those that share those same convictions um, and that same approach to the world. And for some, it's as, it's as much an identity. Maybe ethnic, maybe it's social. This is us. This is what we do. This is what we think to do otherwise is to not be us. That's what they think they're being a part of. Now, there may be some of those elements uh, to these things that, that are in the Christian life, but none capture what the Bible teaches is at the heart of it. At the heart of the believer's life is a relationship. That's what it's at the heart of it. A relationship of trust and of allegiance and love with the God that made us. Our feeling, our thinking, our affections, our struggles are lived out in relationship with God. And so given the profoundly personal nature of faith, it should be no surprise to find out that there is a lot of poetry, that there is a lot of singing throughout the Bible. In fact, in the book of Psalms, there are 150 songs. Now, think about it. When people sing, what do they tend to sing about? You can summon up all of these things in your mind. Notice, notice what's probably not in the things that you're summoning into your head. People don't tend to sing about mathematics. They don't sing about chemical formulas or dry knowledge, unless, of course, we're trying to memorise them. And only then, because that dry knowledge we recognise to be important, and so we use a song or a rhyme to remind us of it. No, but we sing about a lot of things, don't we? We sing about love, of course, loss, grief, joy, pain, stuff about life that makes us laugh. We sing stories... We, we, we uh, write poems and sing about the natural world that delights us, about people and places that are special to us, about our countries, about our heroes, our sagas, our protests, our injustices. That's the stuff we sing about. And we sing these things because there is something about the way God's made human beings means that the rhythms and the tunes and the artistic use of language combined together in us and to connect with the person that is deep within us. 
One commentator put it this way, poetry will take the reader beyond the straightforward meanings of their words to their intellectual and emotional connotations. Poets want to excite in the reader or listener the ideas and feelings that they had when they wrote. In effect, they recreate their emotional experience by the choice of words so that the reader may enter into that experience. The Psalms that we're going to be looking at this term are the spirit-inspired poems of the faithful. They're songs, they're prayers, songs and prayers that enable us to enter into their experience that we might share it and learn from it as men and women of faith who trust in the same God that the Psalms sing about. And as we look at just some of these psalms over the course of this term, uh, we're going to see that they cover a massive, and these are just a sample, a diversity of human experience. And so my prayer is that every one of these songs that we look at will be timely for each one of us. Wherever we might be at in our lives and whatever we might be feeling or experiencing or thinking, that our life, that our faith might be enriched by our loving God who actually knows what it's like to be one of us. And so I thought we'd begin our series with a psalm that causes us to look up and to ponder the amazing grace of God. Psalm 8 is a song of delightful wonder. But before we look at the body of the psalm, what we need to do is we actually need to pay attention to the heading. So unlike the rest of the headings that you'll encounter as you read through your Bibles, um, they've been put in there by modern editors. But these ones, the ones in the Psalms, are actually part of the original text and are inspired by God. And so what can we learn about our psalm before we even begin it? Well, what do we read? For the director of music, according to or upon the Gittith a psalm of David. So straight away we know that Psalm 8 is a song that has been written by King David, the one that we looked at earlier in the year when we we're looking at 1 Samuel. As a song that the director of music at the tabernacle and later at the temple was to put to a tune and that was to be played regularly throughout the generations as part of Israel's worship. And so straight away this tells us that the psalm that follows is a song that the Messiah... God's anointed king wants to be in his people's hearts and so therefore on their lips. Now, like many of the Psalms, the great truth that David wants um, them to sing is actually there in the very first verse. We're not left scratching our heads in Psalm 8 as to what this Psalm is about, right? And what makes it extra clear that this is the big message of Psalm 8 is that it's repeated word for word in the last verse of the Psalm as well. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth? You can say, oh, I get it. God is amazing. Yes, but hold up. David is making a much deeper and, can I say, more specific point than merely a generic observation that God is awesome. Let's break it down a bit and I'll show you what I mean. Have a look there in your, with your Bibles. First, Lord, our Lord. No, David's not repeating himself here. 
Lord, when you read it in your Bible, and it's all in capital letters, is different from the word Lord, which is in the lowercase, right? Lord, in all capitals, is a substitute for the word Yahweh, the personal name that God revealed to his people that they might know him. So Yahweh is the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. Yahweh is the God of Moses. Yahweh is the God who saved his people Israel from slavery in Egypt and brought them to the land that he promised them. Yahweh is the God who spoke to them, who gave them his word, swearing on oath that he would be their God and they would be his people. That is Yahweh. So this is not a song about some unknowable, distant creator God, but Yahweh, our Lord, our Lord. And that very connection that God has with his people is actually at the heart of what Psalm 8 is all about. Okay, so what about the second part of the the line then? How majestic is your name in all the earth? Well, it's God's people singing out that Yahweh is not just our majestic ruler, but that his name is majestic throughout the earth. Know that it's not, may your name be honoured, or let the earth honour you, but that his name is majestic throughout all the earth. The statement is an absolute. Whether people acknowledge him or not, it is a wonderful reality that is there to be proclaimed everywhere. His name is majestic. And why is it to be declared throughout the earth? Well, because his majesty cannot be denied. Look there, the second part in verse 2 there, you have set your glory in the heavens. Now, it's not the usual word that's used for glory there, but it's one that is often used in Hebrew poetry, particularly to refer to God's majesty being on display before people. And that's what we've got here. God has set his glory in, or more accurately, actually, above the heavens. In other words, there's no place higher. All of creation, everywhere, is under his glory. His majesty can be seen by all. And that is what I think verse 2 is actually highlighting for us. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. I love the the poetry that we read there, that that wonderful almost clash that, that the speech of children silences God's enemies, that the weak and powerless are a stronghold against the schemes of the violent. Those who would stand opposed to God and his purposes in their arrogance are actually proven to be ignorant fools because even little children look at the skies in wonder and go, wow, God is amazing. With their their simple faith, with their guileless prayers, their innocent and yet instinctive praises. Each new generation acknowledges the true glory of God that his enemies continually labour to deny all the time, but kids can get it. And we read that it's, as we read this, it's hard not to gasp ourselves into 
many years to come after this. And Jesus' words to his disciples in Mark's Gospel, when, when children were being brought, brought to Jesus and the disciples are going, oh, don't bother, don't bother the Messiah with, the, with these, these children, he rebukes them and keep, tries to keep them away. But look at verse 14, when Jesus of Mark chapter 10, when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Talk about a stronghold. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. God delights in uplifting the humble and bringing down the proud. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. But there's another important thing to reflect upon here. The fact that God's majesty is not hidden. All you've got to do to see it is look up. In another psalm, David expands on this theme when he sings this in Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech, they use no words, no sound is heard from them and yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. Even children can see it. And this testifies against those that would deny God's glory, but it does more than that. It marks them out as his enemies. And that is serious. I want you to have a look at these very important words from Romans chapter 1. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so the people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God, nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. You know, in, in political um, shows, television shows, they, they talk about this concept called plausible deniability. Have you heard of that expression when it comes to controversial matters? Plausible deniability. In other words, you've got it if when you're questioned by media or, or, or an inquiry or some sort, the politician can plead ignorance about something they actually do know about and be believed. Their deniability is, is plausible, right? There is no plausible deniability when it comes to God. We might think there is, that God somehow should make himself more obvious, more clear, more in our face. He should turn up, shouldn't he? If I'm to acknowledge him. And only then, before it would be fair for him to call us to account for rejecting him. You heard thinking like that? God says, 
No. Sorry. The truth of my divine majesty is inscribed throughout the universe. And if you deny that, it's on you. But the song of the faithful is very different to that. When we look up to the heavens, our song is to be David's song. Our song is to be that of the living creatures and the elders in Revelation chapter 4. That you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power. Because you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. Well, now David moves from the obviousness of God's majesty to a new wonder. That the God who actually owns the heavens and made them actually has an interest in humanity. Even individual human beings. And he's gobsmacked by it. Have a look at verses 3 and 4. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you've set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings, literally a son of man, that you care for them. I mean, have you ever stopped and pondered that? And wondered about it. It's as if we can picture David again looking up to the sky at night in in wonder on a crystal clear Judean evening, unpolluted by our smog or drowned out by a sea of electric lights. He actually gets to see stars. And, And as his eyes soak in the myriad of stars before him and their constellations and he sees the bright moon above, And he wonders to himself, how is it that the God who made those stars and put every single one of them in their place pays any attention to us puny human beings? That that he would even remember us at all, let alone care for us. I mean, who is humanity that we should expect such a thing from such a God? And yet he cries out, he says, that's what you've done. He delights in it. Can I say, again, as an aside, what what a clash this is with the sense of entitlement that we so often hear expressed by so many around, around us and sometimes maybe we might even feel in ourselves that God owes us a happy, fulfilling, long life. That he should be running after us like a genie going, what do you need, what do you need, what do you need, what do you need? Such that if we don't get it, we hate him for it. Or we accuse him of doing evil and being bad. Or we actually use that as a reason to deny the possibility of his existence. When I consider your heavens, the moon and the stars that you've set in place, well, you clearly don't care about me or you'd have solved all my problems. Instead of being humbled by his care, we feel that we've got the right to demand it of him. What we should see is is the truth that David sees and actually marvel at it. That the God whose handiwork is the very universe in all of its enormity cares personally for each one of us. That 
is an absolute wonder. And again, there is a deeper and more wonderful truth behind this than it might appear even on the surface. There is a deep biblical history to looking at the stars and remembering God's deep care for his people. Right at the beginning of Israel's story, God promised to Abram that he would make him into a great nation and bless all nations through him. But as Abraham grew older and older and childless, this promise seemed likely to go unfulfilled and forgotten. All God had given him would end up going to one of his servants. And then in Genesis 15, we read this. Then the word of Yahweh came to him. This man will not be your heir, the servant, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Just think of that, right? Think about that picture. The God who made the stars is comforting a childless old man living in a tent in the Middle East and is making a promise to him to honour him and bless him. Well, God gave Abram that son, Isaac, and now many hundreds of years later, the king of God's nation of people, a nation settled in the land that God had promised Abram, looks at those stars again and sings in wonder, what is man that you remember him, the son of a man, that you would care for him? See, David knew from the history of his own people, and knew from his own life that Yahweh did remember and does remember and he does care. And every time Israel looked at the stars, God's people could be reminded of his loving faithfulness to his promises to them. You know, the word condescend gets a bad rap. And true, sometimes condescension is offensive, okay? You know, when somebody assumes that they are superior who isn't and then they display that in a condescending manner when they speak to you as if their very speech to you is something you should be thankful for. But, but condescension is wonderful when it's not an attitude but it's when what has actually happened, when it's a reality. When someone in a position of greatness steps down to give of themselves to those who have no right to expect or demand that from them. So, you know, imagine an international cricketer joining their help, the kids down at the local cricket nets. You'd be going, did you see what he did? Did you see what she did? Like the top professor that goes above and beyond to help tutor a struggling student. Well, how wonderful is God's condescension? the divine creator of galaxies and stars showing love and faithfulness to me and to you. But God's done even more than pay attention to people. He's actually honoured us beyond imagining. Verse 5, You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honour. 
You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. David wonders at the privileged position that God has placed humanity in. He's made us rulers over the work of his hands. He's graciously given us dominion over his world. Now, David's taking us back to Genesis 1, to the climactic work of God's creation, God's work of creation. Look at verse 26 to 28 of Genesis 1. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. And so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Have you taken time to properly marvel at this reality. We are more than God's creation. Alone of all that God has done, we are his image bearers. We are. David's words are right. God's crowned every single one of us with glory and honour just by that very virtue. Again, it it seems tragic, doesn't it, that so many people have degraded, have a degraded view of what it is to be human. What a wonderless blindness that says we ain't nothing but mammals. Now, you may have heard the oft-quoted fact that our DNA is 99% the same as a chimpanzee, as if that seals the deal that humanity is nothing special that we're just more highly evolved apes than them by bit. Well, did you know that we also happen to be 60%, have 60% the same DNA as a banana? You and I are only 40% more than a piece of fruit. Really? Of course, there's another way of looking at chimpanzees. The materialist will say we're 1% different, essentially. Are we? Let's, let's put it to the reality test, shall we? Look around you. As you and I are here discussing literature and theology, as we're reflecting upon our society and its nature and ourselves, analysing our own thoughts and behaviours, while sitting in a building or buildings at home, that we've constructed from materials that we've refined, having harnessed the earth's resources to acquire them, watching images projected on screens utilising technology that manipulates light, stuff that was imported across the skies in a plane, or if it wasn't that, it was thousands of kilometres across an ocean in a boat... We're talking about DNA that, by the way, we happen to have mapped out and even discovered. And we marvel that chimpanzees can learn to communicate with complex hand gestures that we taught them 
as Sarah said earlier, one of the greatest testimonies to the reality of God stares at you in the mirror whenever you look at it in the morning. Think, which best matches the world that you look at and your experience as a human being? That we are spiritual beings as well as physical ones with the ability to harness this creation because we've been made in the image of a wise creator God? Or that we are just chimpanzees plus 1% and bananas plus 40, whose experience that we call life is actually not life, it's no more than a sum of chemical reactions taking place in organisms randomly assembled over time by mindless forces that are themselves flukes of a self-creating existence that just generated itself out of nothing and for no reason. What do you reckon is reality? If you believe the former, then with David, stand in awe and wonder at the generosity of your God. What a gift. What honour God has given humankind. And so David returns to the place he started. Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. All the earth should be honouring him, not just Israel, not just Christians. For this grace of dominion has extended beyond them to all humanity. His name is and should be great in all the earth. Friends, the original singers of Psalm 8 were to sing with delight-filled wonder at God's great honouring of humankind with dominion over his creation. But more than that, they, they were in the privileged position of actually knowing and being in a relationship with this God. A God who had revealed himself to their forefathers and who kept their promises to him. But as Christians, we get to see that there is a deeper wonder. The wonder that we heard about in that second reading from Hebrews chapter 2. If David marvelled at God's grace in paying attention to humanity at all, let alone caring for us, if that's what he's going, wow. If he wondered at the dominion over his creation that God has given his people, then his mind would be blown by what God would do a thousand years later after he wrote this through his descendant, the Messiah. That he would actually step into the world that he had made himself as one of us that he would humble himself and become a little lower than the angels and that he would do so in order to die for his broken and sinful image bearers and redeem us and bring us to glory. But we do see Jesus, the writer of Hebrews says, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honour, because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. As Paul sings in the great Christ hymn of Philippians 2, of Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And therefore God exalted him 
to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That might as well be the New Testament Psalm 8, don't you think? Now, look at the stars again and wonder. Seriously, look at them again. Let me encourage you to go out this week, and the weeks that follow, and open your eyes again and look at the world that God has made and the stars and the moon and the sky and the oceans and the trees and the animals, even the brilliant people that he's made, and ponder its beauty and reflect anew upon the God that made it and who made you and who in Christ has graciously made you to be like him. The God who you know personally and who wasn't merely mindful of you but sent his own son to die for you that you might share in his life and glory forever. Do some wondering about that and never stop wondering about that. Sing out and proclaim with all your heart, O Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Amen.